Hey guys, welcome to Electronic Dance Money, your number one business resource for making money as electronic musicians and producers. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Electronic Dance Money. I am your host, Christian Casido, and we got a great episode in the uh, works for today. I'm here with Brock Shinin from Shinin Law, but also um, from uh, Indie Music Success. We met through the... uh, Alex Wayman and I do an event every month, and I've talked about on the podcast before. Uh, where we do like a networking meetup event. We have people come in and just hang out, network with each other, all different music industry professionals. But then Alex also does some, uh, he does like events, professional events where you can come in, hang out, and there's a professional talking about a specific topic. Um, There's been a bunch of people in the past who have talked about running ads and metadata, and you were on the last one in February that I was in. And Mike, who also my my buddy Mike Vaughn, he kind of helps co-host some episodes every once in a while. He was in there as well. But it was a fantastic hour-long event that uh you just dove into everything there is to know about publishing rights organizations, why you should register your music, and some of the law behind it. So after going through that, I was like, this is this is perfect for my, my audience. I need to bring you in here because I know producers have so many questions so um thank you for taking the time during that event because it was fantastic yeah man that was a fun one and i'm i'm looking forward to this one because i know there's a lot we could cover so much that we can help so yeah let's go for it yeah definitely there's i you know you actually mentioned because i sent an idealist of like things we might talk about and you're like you want to talk about like mashups and remixes i was like i don't even know why i didn't think of that but that is like a big you know, that's probably at the top of the list for producers on questions like, how am I allowed to release this? How can I release it? What do I need to get approved? So we'll dive into some of that stuff. But in the meantime, um, if you don't mind, let's like let's hear your story, your history of how you got involved in music, because you're not just on the law side. You are also a music musician yourself. You write and record your own music. So uh, how did you get into that? state of the industry and move yourself into law yeah man it's it's a fun uh sort of long story so i'll just share some highlights i grew up in a very musical family um my mom and and also my dad was a pastor and so i grew up in the church right so my mom was the worship leader so she's playing piano she's singing everywhere right and my grandparents had this traveling quartet and so i'd grow up you know sometimes during the summers they'd be on tour um, they were signed to different labels, you know, as, as a kid, it'd be like, oh, they're going to this event or they're going to be performing. So I was around music from a pretty young age and uh, my older brother picked up guitar early on. And then I, I was like, I got to learn something. And, you know, it's <laughs> like you're a kid, you learn whatever, tr- like I played trombone yeah. in elementary, um, the typical stuff and then picked up a guitar. And I think musically, um, granted, this is kind of dating me and and also the era and the and the place where I grew up. But I think I a lot of it was influenced by my older brother because I'd hear him listening to like a lot of like UK punk stuff or like, okay. you know, Black Flag and the Sex Pistols and stuff uh-huh. like that. But then I would also hear Rush. And I remember just being like, 
oh my gosh, this drummer, like the it's insane. Like Neil Peart and Alex Lifeson on guitar and Getty Lee. And so even as like a fourth grader, I'm just like amazed at this musical talent, right? Plus I'm around music. So it just really kicked in this fire for, I want my life to be around music. And so like, you can fast forward through my entire life, you know, whether it's like playing small groups, you know, guitar at church or it's writing songs, um, writing pop songs for my daughter, who's who's now a singer. So there's all these different things. I love to write. I love to create. If I wasn't, I think I'd just fall over, you know, and and you know, die or pass out. God forbid. But yeah, so that's that's what drives me. Is creating is what drives me. Even being a lawyer, if I'm not creating in the context of how I practice law. It, it just, you know, you start to wither. So for me, I get the creative mind because I couldn't exist without being creative. And I've written books and screenplays and songs and poems. And I'll sit at my computer and just try and figure out how to make beats. I'll try, you know, whatever. So that's that's kind of all the the precursor to where I'm at now. The, I resonate with that so much. You know, when I was younger, I remember going to Warp Tour with my sister who was my sister introduced me to all these like alternative rock bands and uh, more of the like hardcore metal bands that were all on Warp Tour from like 2007 to 2011 or so. So this was like, you know, this is 12 years ago or so. Um, and I, I mean, at the time I was, how old was, I think I had to have been like probably 12 or 13. And so my, my sister was a couple years older than me. She started listening to this, those bands, which I started listening to them. And then she started going to warp tour. So I started going and I remember having the same thing where, you know, AP tour would come through, uh, I'm from Boise, Idaho. So it would come through there at the knitting factory and the spring tours would come through and whatnot. And I remember we would go to every show. I mean, it was, I, 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 I talked to, I remember talking to kids when I was like, or I should say adults, but people when I was like 18, that were same, my same age. And they're like, Oh yeah, I just went to my first concert last week. And that would like my, that blew my mind because at 13, I had already been to probably 50 concerts and just constantly going. And I remember I remember listening to that music and going to those shows and experiencing the events and just thinking, this is what I wanted. I didn't know what it was that I wanted to do. I wasn't, I was unsure, but like the, the experience of, of listening to music live and seeing these musicians and listening to their recordings, I just knew I wanted to do something. I, I had no idea what it was. I had no idea what a DAW was. I mean, I had just... I was not sure. And then I found electronic music and realized, oh, wait, you get a DAW and you like open up and you can just play around with synths. And I was like, okay, this I think might be what I like. And it took over my life when I was like 15 or 16. So I'm 27 now. Um, and it's, yeah. And that's bled into other creative things too. Like, you know, I've been getting into software development for the last eight months or so, about it, almost a year. And like that in and of itself, like creating applications and building things. There's such a big creative force behind that. And it's a different outlet that I just love, like that techie stuff of of building things that computers use to talk to each other and people can ex experience the same thing with just, uh, yeah, the creation stuff has taken over my life and I love building and creating things. So I respect that uh, so much. How did you get into the law side of things? 
So I was actually a music publisher. Um, it, it's there's a lot of pieces of the story. I was actually on my way to being a clinical psychologist. Oh wow! Um, and I was I'd done my undergrad. I was in a grad program. I was about midway through that uh, program with a master's and doctorate, and just really felt like I, I knew I wanted to help people, but I just wanted. I don't know how to put it in words, but just wanted something different to be able to help them. Um, so I started, you know, just looking at different options. So I found a job at a at a work at a um, uh, music publishing company that was really blowing up, and uh, ended up in their accounting department. But pretty quickly got recruited into the publishing department, and then got put in charge of all the publishing, which was just crazy, right? Um, and this is also like physical products were, yeah. were still the thing. And so, I mean, you, you know, with charting and with just even like the profit margin on physical product, it's insane. Right. And so I had, I had a full view of like, oh my gosh, this is all the rights management and licenses that have to go back and forth for sometimes just one song. There's, you know, 20 to 30 different contracts, documents, whatever. So I wanted to supplement my work by with a law degree. And so I started going to school at night thinking, oh, this will be my job forever. And I'll just like bring a law degree into it. And, you know, once I started law school, you know, it's just different dynamics come into play. And and so what started as I want to supplement this music publishing job turned into, oh, now I see a lot more opportunity of what I can accomplish with this, with this degree and passing the bar. And so that was by that point, and I also I've been writing a lot and doing a lot of things creatively. So I'm like, this gives me a lot more power to help people, but also help myself. And so that was the trigger for law specifically, you know. Knowing you from the event and watching some of your content, like on your YouTube videos, I get the feeling that you do want to help other musicians. Like that's that's the honest bread and butter of what you're trying to do with the whole law side of things. And I don't see, I mean, I lawyers are very in the music industry lawyers are very behind the scenes they're like unheard of they're kind of hard to find they're hard to spot and if you do find one they usually work for like a big company or something in which case they're not necessarily out to help out other musicians but help out the company they're working for and so it is it's really fresh to see a new face that cares about musicians the rights they have and how we can push that that movement forward because musicians I feel like have been cut out of so many important things in terms of like deals and the way deals are wrapped up. And so it's nice to see someone else. Like I, I'm very much, have you read the go-giver before? The go-giver? Yeah. By Bob Berg. Great book. I'll have to send you a link to it. I talk about it religiously on this podcast, but it's, um, it's about, you know, adopting the business philosophy of wanting to help others without necessarily an expectation of anything in return. And it creates this great karma-like effect. It's been adopting that philosophy has been great for my own businesses and just my personal life. And so I get that sense of just the ability to just help people is, is what will take you on a much more rich journey and people will respect that and want to work with you way more. So, um, I appreciate that so much. And let's, let's jump into the topic of today, which is all about publishing rights organizations and uh, what that side of the industry is like. You know, I've, I've had an episode that I did solo by myself um, and I talked about some of the points you talked about um, in that event, but I feel like you're, you do it more justice knowing uh, working in that industry than myself. So um, 
let's uh let's talk about why artists need to care about publishing rights organizations and what it ex what it has to do with their music in general yeah totally i think the good place to start with that question or the answer to that question is understanding that creativity is either a hobby or a business and and that's a harsh reality for a lot of people because sometimes it has to feel like a hobby because we have a nine to five that you know puts food on the table pays the rent and all that kind of stuff but i think if you step back and say look i don't want it to be a hobby like this this drives me it gives me juice right for life and it could pay the bills it can if you treat it like a business it generally can't if you treat it like a hobby so i think the starting point is this mental perspective of i don't like if I'm going to create, like for me, I, what pays the bill is my law practice, right? For the most part. And, and some of my creations do. But if I wanted to do that full time, I'm going to have to shift my mindset to, right, this is a business. Now, if it's a business, would you start any business like a food truck, a shoe store, a, you know, retail, whatever, like a, an online business without thinking about where am I going to put my money? Like I need a bank account. Do I need an LLC or a S corp? Like you're going to figure stuff out. Right. But as creatives, many time, all we focus on is the creative aspect yep. at the neglect of the business aspect. Yep. So, so to me, it's, it's an easy, it's like a layup answer of like, how are you going to be in a business that you don't fully understand? Or at least you're not trying to fully understand. Right. And music and creativity in particular is all hinging on based in, in copyrights. So if you don't have a fundamental grasp of what copyrights are and why they're important, you're not going to understand not just about protecting your creativity, but also monetizing it effectively. And go back 20, 30 years, like there was only so many ways you could really effectively monetize creativity because of gatekeepers, because of the cost of creation, because if you didn't have a label support or whatever, like, what are you going to do? Uh, just a quick side note. And I, I don't, I don't remember this story very often, but I remember I was in elementary school and I found, I went to Goodwill and I found like this little kid's turntable because I wanted to start scratching and like okay. making music where I'm like, so I'd play a track on, on like my, my boom box then. And then I'd have another one that was recording and I'd have like, the, like this little record player connected to a speaker and I'd be like, you know, doing that. <laughs> yeah. But it got me thinking about like, I remember it's so, so strange, but a friend like, like realized I was doing this and he's like, wait, aren't you going to get in trouble? I'm like, trouble. Well, you know, as a kid, you don't know what that means. But as an adult, you're like, trouble is infringement, right? Yeah. But so you have to think about infringement and protection and monetization. So let's get pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Copyright is a limited monopoly where you, the creator, own a certain bundle, what we call a bundle of rights, right? There's the right, the, and these are exclusive to you, um, the right to publicly perform your stuff, the right to publicly distribute for the first time your stuff, the right to make copies of your stuff, the right to make derivative works, which might be like a translation or some sort of adaptation or remix or whatever. Um, the right to uh, transmit uh, sound recordings by digital transmission. And I know I'm missing one copy derivative work. Um, it, it'll come to me. Um, uh, public performance. Did I say that anyways. So understanding that you have this bundle of rights, then you then you start to understand that that piece of property, each of those rights can be exploited. 
but it could be exploited in a way where you profit from it, or it could be exploited in a way where you get taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. So think about all the people that might, you know, hear your song, take your song or use your beat or whatever, put it up on YouTube and they're getting the likes, they're getting the streams. You know, you're thinking, well, how do I get, how do I monetize that? Or how do I get my money extracted from the fact that people are using my songs on social media or whatever? It, it doesn't just come with checking the boxes on, well, I issued a license or I've negotiated a deal with the social media platforms. It really goes back to, do I understand how copyrights even work in order to know, do I need to be registered with a performing rights organization? Why does that even matter? Like, how does that fit into the ecosystem? The copyright office, do I, like, do I need to register this? So I know, a P, like, we can go a thousand directions on this, right? So yeah. I'll, I'll stick with the PRO piece because we kind of kicked off with that. The PRO, the Performing Rights Organization, is the organization that collects on public performances of your music. So just do like the tracing of this. I write a song, I go, you know, on stage, I'm at a rave, I'm at a party, I'm at a concert, and I play it, you know, live speakers, whatever. Um, that's a public performance. Who's collecting on that? Well, the gig like paid me, you know, a few hundred bucks to show up. That has nothing to do with the performance. That's the venue paying you. But those songs could be extracting value. Let's say the venue has an ASCAP license and you're an ASCAP writer. That, that venue is paying ASCAP a fee, right? Every year where they can play any song in the ASCAP repertoire and it gets pooled into, and it's a complicated accounting scheme, right? Um, but I might make a few pennies from that. Well, if I'm doing that all over the country, all over the world, I'm doing that multiple times, big venues, big venues to pay more, blah, blah, blah. That could actually turn into systematic revenue. Mm -hmm. But it starts with understanding the, the economic ecosystem of where the money travels and why to, to even understand why do I even care about a Piero? What's the big deal? You know, I know my song's not on the radio, so why do I care? Well, did you know that streaming platforms are paying through the PROs? um for the performance side of that of that stream oh i didn't know that maybe i should have you know what i mean yeah so these are the pieces that all go back to education for me is critical to you making money mm -hmm. and if you don't understand how the money works and where it travels and why one dollar goes here but one dollar goes there you can never understand how to fully extract it so do you need a pro there's no question you have to be affiliated with a pro which one? Let's let's run through real quick. There's as in the U.S. There's ASCAP, CSAC, BMI. There's actually a couple others, but those are the big three. Two of those are government authorized monopolies. Most people don't really pay attention to that, but the government has said you're a monopoly, but you have to operate by these rules. That's ASCAP and BMI. CSAC's private, much smaller, whatever. Which one do I go with? Well, ASCAP and BMI are massive. Like the costs are pretty close: fifty bucks, hundred bucks free for writers, um, you know, do you register as a publisher also? So you can do the math and you can weigh the options. Sometimes people like everyone I know is a BMI uh, PRO, you know, a publisher. So then BMI is fine. S some people, everyone you know is ASCAP. Do I have a recommendation? It's more about when they're big like that, their web of collection and accounting is pretty much everywhere. And so then it becomes less about which one you affiliate with and more about, are you keeping your stuff up to date? Are you right. updating new songs, right? But there's no question, if you don't register with a PRO, you're putting music out. 
there's money being generated. You're just not being paid for mm-hmm. it. So I'll hit pause there because I know I can I can yeah. go on this. But no, it was perfect. You I you answered some questions I had lined up. So it was I, I loved it. I loved it. Um, especially you know I'm seeing a lot of my friends where they are uh they have tracks being played out by big artists like artists that are packing selling out venues with two thousand people and they're playing their music live. And so it is like, if you're not registering that music, registering it correctly, uh, you could potentially be losing out on money, especially, you know, in electronic music, there's a website called 1001 Tracklist. And uh, have you heard of that site before? Yeah. So every you can go on and see who's playing your music, where and when and like in what environment. And if your music isn't registered and you see your tracks being played out, you're technically not getting paid for those playouts. What is the difference between a um a oh wow I I just had it lined up a uh, a public performance there we go a public performance versus a private performance because you mentioned something after you wrap that answer up um I've got a quick little story for you and a little anecdote to share with people but what are the difference between differences between a public performance and a private performance and why should artists care about that as well. Yeah, totally. So generally speaking, public performance is in front of the public or open to the public. There have been a lot of cases around this. And the way law works is sometimes you have to pull cases from other industries or whatever to put into. So let me give you a quick example and I'll try and make it quick. Uh, If you remember, there was like Blockbuster, um, you know, those movie rental places, Mm -hmm. right? And you can go in, rent a physical copy, you know, a VHS tape or DVD or whatever. There were some other businesses where you can, it was almost like a karaoke room where you could rent your movie and then go in a room and like order food and they had couches and whatever. So there was a lawsuit by some of the studios over that that's a public performance for which those studios weren't being paid for. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, the business, you know, countered with it wasn't public performance because these are private rooms rented by private individuals. The court said it's public because it's open to the public. We don't care if there's four people in there, 400 people in there. It's the fact that it's open to the public. So not the number of people. So when you think about public or private, if if you and I gather a few of our friends and invite each other to one of our houses and no one else is invited, that's that looks like a private performance, right? From the sense of public's not invited. But at what point, at what number does it become a public event, even though it's in my house, Right. Um, is that 40 people? Is that 400 people? The law hasn't come up with, look, the law is a generic concept, hasn't yeah. come up with a number that triggers whether it's public or private. So the way you have to look at it is, first and foremost, I think, ask the question, is it open to the public? If it is, we don't care how many people are in there. If it's not open to the public, it, like how many people are in here? And if it's mm-hmm. four and they're all family or like close friends, probably not public. If it's like a house party, and I don't care, it's your house, my house, but if it's a house party and there's a lot of people, that could be a public performance, right? So it's, you're always messing with dynamics and specifics in each circumstance, you know? And I think it's important to understand too, this is talking about like private businesses, private business, it's open to the public, right? You go to a Starbucks, they better be paying some sort of publishing rights organizations. If they're not, the artists, any music that goes on in that, in that Starbucks, they're not paying for any of that music. And so, This goes back to a point you had mentioned. I remember in the event, you're like, you know, if you guys are out at a public setting and they're playing music, 
like a some sort of public free event thing that you're at find out if they are paying for a license and funny enough you know i was at south by southwest was just going on about about a month ago or so a little less than that and there was a saturday after um it was that the last weekend that saturday there was a little event going not even an event it was just like a bunch of djs that were in town big some big djs too um were like hey we're all getting together at zilker in austin um come hang out and there was probably like 20 or 25 people there and decks were up and people were spinning and that was going on for like three or four hours it was a ton of fun super cool people were just jumping on and off and i remember talking to the guy that owned everything i was like hey are you do you have a license with a pro like ascap or bmi and they're like oh no i was like well this is like a public perform i'm and the only reason i'm saying that is like everyone there was basically a dj and an artist and all of they're all playing their own music and they're playing other people's music and it's like this is awesome but you guys do realize like none of us we all want to get paid for our music we all talk about it but none of us here are paying a licensing fee so that we can pay artists so um going just that step forward and like like at least putting it on people's minds of hey if you want artists to get paid you should go get a license to do this sort of a thing and especially they're like yeah we're thinking about like doing this more monthly sort of thing and I've seen other public events like that, you know, quote unquote public events, but you know, it's at Zilker. It's a public park. People bring in decks and start playing and that's awesome. It's a ton of fun, but at the same time, like go pay for a license because you want these artists to get paid for, you want to get paid as an artist. So, so does everyone else. So, um, if we're all like working towards that goal and making sure our, you know, we are, our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed, then, then we're all getting paid. Right. And to add to that, I mean, it's a great point, but to add to that, you also have an opportunity for a couple of things. Number one, you're educating a venue yep. and that, and think about how many hundreds of thousands or millions of venues in the United States alone, much less the rest of the world that are playing music and don't even think about that. So you're educating them. And a lot of these people genuinely want to help the artist community. They just don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you're also creating monetization opportunities for yourself. So if you know, like wherever you're at, whatever part of the country or world you're in, that you can build relationship with a venue and they don't have a PRO license, I'm not saying don't still encourage them, but it's also an opportunity for you to say, hey, look, I, I, I have nothing to do with what you're doing with other artists, but I just like, for me, it's important. So I'll issue you a license for mm -hmm. when I do these songs. And they, you know, they have you out, they pay you a couple hundred bucks for the gig, but you can say, hey, there, I usually charge a minimum of a hundred bucks, you know, per performance for, you know, the license of the rights to the songs, you know, like the fact that they're even being played here. And granted, that might get you kicked out of some venues. My point is more to start thinking like a business person and let like not, not less as an artist, just add on supplement with thinking as a business person, because uh, I'll say this, this doesn't just apply to what I just said. This applies to generally you being an artist and a creator is don't always think of shutting people down. Think of providing a way for them to pay you. Yeah. Because the the the, um, the the gut instinct is I got to call a lawyer, send a cease and desist. Anytime we see anything going wrong. And this is a much broader answer, right? Or a much bigger problem. Stop thinking like that. Don't don't pay somebody like me to write a letter that doesn't really put money in your pocket. Think, how can I extract value 
from this relationship, not how can I stop this? Yeah. It's not a bad thing. You mentioned that author in that book. I I've I would have said the same thing about like Seth Godin, or yeah. even Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Mm -hmm. Or Simon Sinek. Same thing, like give away. The giving economy is what grows you. You want your ideas to spread. You want your art to spread. You don't want to be sending cease and desist letters out. You don't want to be shutting people down because it stops the track, like your music from traveling. What you want is your music out there. Dude, play my music or let me play, but let's do this the right way, not shut it down or else, you know? Yeah, and this is like, this is the way to move the ball forward with rights in music and making sure people are getting paid. I see it day in and day out, people bitching and complaining on social media. We're not getting paid. Not getting, it's like, okay, well, do you know how you're supposed to get paid? Like, do you know how the system works? Because if you don't know how the system works, then you shouldn't be spouting out about how you need to get paid when you're going and playing venues that aren't paying people. So it's like, it's that, it's, it's that plain and simple. Um, at least if you're putting it on people's minds, you're the, the whole educational thing is, is so it goes levels beyond where you could possibly imagine. If you're putting it on someone's mind, they might think about that later and go, Oh, you know what? Let me take a look at this. And they realize, Oh, I can buy a I can, you can literally go on at BMI or ASCAP right now and they have a like purchase a license button. That's it's very easy to do. So and it's cheap too, by yeah. the way, that could be 200 bucks a year. Mm -hmm. Right. And for a bar that that's doing a couple million in sales, what's 200, 500, a thousand bucks a year. Nothing. Yeah, definitely. And I, I know there's people who listen to this podcast that they are playing at bars. They're live DJing on Fridays and Saturdays. And I wouldn't put it past most of those bars that they aren't paying some sort of license. And listen, like whether that's intentional or not, they probably are just more ignorant. They just don't know that this is a thing that you're supposed to do um, or that that they should do. So let's let's jump into some more of the nuanced stuff with EDM producers specifically. Um, so with EDM producers, you know, I was mentioning before we started the podcast with. EDM producers have kind of two routes they can go. They can sign a single with a record label, which you see day in and day out. Most of those are smaller record labels um, that don't have the biggest reach or the biggest budgets. Um, and some of them may also be ignorant to some of this music business stuff, especially in the publishing rights um, side of things. But then also EDM producers are releasing independently. They're, you know, going on DistroKid or Amuse or some other platform to release their music independently. Let's start independently and then go back to the record label side of things that way, because we might be able to wrap up some of the, you know, what are what are the ways in which you need to ask questions to record labels on how they're registering music now you should. But as an independent artist. How should you be registering your music with a publishing right or rights organization? Because there are there's like three different ways you can actually register your music, correct? Well, um, maybe not three different ways. There's just multiple like check boxes or triggers, yeah, that's, like, right? You yeah, know, yeah. we're saying the same thing. So I think of it, and this isn't necessarily chronological because all the stuff needs to happen and it all needs to happen like right now. But if you come up with a track then you want to release that if you're going with DistroKid, for example. If it's all original and you don't need any third-party clearances, there's nothing sampled or whatever, it's just 100% you, makes it a lot easier, right? So let's start with that and then add some talk about sampling or whatever. But for your part, you got to think about copyright registrations. There's a common misconception is that 
anything you do, including like mailing it to yourself, emailing it to yourself, protects it because in the United States, at least, and you have listeners all over the world. So some of this will be different depending on where they're at. But in the United States, a copyright copyright protection exists. It subsists in an original work of authorship when it's fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Historically, you know, cassettes, um, digital tape, whatever, CDs, vinyl. Um, now, really, we're thinking digital files. So as soon as you fix that in a, in a tangible medium of expression, like a digital file, it's a WAV file, it's an MP3, whatever, it's protected by copyright. The problem is we don't know what that means. What do you mean protected by copyright? I can't go file a lawsuit for infringement because I fixed it in a tangible medium of expression. Because what most people don't realize is, oh, I have to have a federal registration before I could file a lawsuit. And so it it means that many people are like, okay, you don't need to register with the copyright office because you already have protection. True, but that it's protection with that. It's like a uh, maybe a horrible example, but a gun with no ammo, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. You yeah, might scare yeah. some people, but you, you can't do anything with yeah. it. And so the registration is the key part to actually getting the protection, getting the rights. The other piece is the PROs. ASCAP, CSAC, BMI here, but there's um, GMR. There's all kinds of different, depending on where you're at in the world, um, you'll have a performing rights organization. Now, I will say for your international listeners that some countries have mechanical rights collection societies that are together with performing rights organizations. Here in the in the U.S., our performing rights organizations are separate and apart from any me mechanical collection societies. So where you're at will depend on what rights are covered. But here... Um, you pick one. Let's let's just say because I don't. A lot of people give this so much, like, oh my gosh, what if I pick the wrong one? Yeah, then change. Like it's yeah, not a big yeah. deal, right? You're locked in for a year or two years, depending on which which one you sign with. But then switch, and you'll realize you'll talk to people. They're collecting regardless. So ASCAP, CSAC, BMI, pick one. That's the point. Pick one. Come up with your designee. Which which just as a side note, practically speaking. You know, I'm Brock Shinen, but I might have uh, as an ASCAP publisher, Brock Shinen Music. In fact, I don't even remember my ASCAP publishing designee. It probably is like Brock Shinen Music or something, whatever. So pick yours. You you complete your writer's account. Now your account set up, but you got to get your songs in there. So you start listing like all your, your songs. Now, one difference with EDM producers and producers in general is remember a lot of times you're balancing which is the sound recording or the track and which is the musical composition. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Which is probably one of the next like follow-up questions because with, with a track, you're going to have a difficult time, especially within EDM is what is the musical composition, right? There may or may not be lyrics. It may just mm -hmm. be a beat. So do you protect, like, how do you get paid? Like those are, those are big question marks. And it's kind of a, a it's, kind of a tough question to answer because a musical composition usually fits into a box of definition where most people would say, oh, I know what the musical composition is. It's lyrics and melody. So you have the melody part. What about the lyrics? Well, sometimes we have lyrics, sometimes we don't, but you can protect the melody. So protect the melody and you protect that by, but, but what if it's a drum beat? What if it's just weird synth or scream sounds or whatever? You know, that's where it gets tricky for producers is because we're not even sure what to protect with the PRO, right? which is also why the starting point is the copyright office because the copyright office, the copyright registration will protect your thing, your creation. Granted, you need to use the right forms and check the right boxes, but assuming you do, 
whatever it is, you you protect it. With the PROs, they can't protect your master or your sound recording or your track, right? They don't do that. So what do you register with them? The melody. Unless there's lyrics, then it's the lyrics and melody. But many times you're uploading a track as evidence of what the musical composition is, right? right. So, but then be, I know we're, again, there's a thousand rabbit trails we can go on every single piece we go, but you need to protect the master, right? So think about sound exchange and put, if, you know, if you're taking notes, like look up sound exchange, it protects the master side in a similar way. Mechanical rights. Like what about mechanical rights? The Harry Fox agency, you know, there's administrators that will do that. There's music publishers that will do that. But if you're solo, if you're doing, it's all DIY for you, look at the Harry Fox agency. Um, first time I heard that, Oh, that phrase, I was like, I'm not even clicking on that. I, you know, I don't want to know what that is. Yeah, let's not. Let's, uh, let's like, there's going to be some pop up blockers here. Right? I'm sure. Give me some not safer work. <laughs> yeah. So, Ooh. all that to say, you need to be looking for where I can, and, and you're protecting the underlying musical composition, you're protecting the track as much as you can, right? Now, and, may, and when I say protecting, setting up your account. Uh, getting all your 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 info in there and then uploading your tracks getting make, making sure lyrics are covered and then you have all these like think about DistroKid you know when you submit a track to DistroKid like you could check the box for YouTube um, right. content ID programs yeah. like, right yeah. that's in a now you have to pay for it but it's an additional way for that mechanism to track hey my song's being played it extracts a fee from that hopefully and pays you right mm -hmm. but those are all pieces of just there's random tools now everywhere there were never these tools before. 20 years ago, mm -hmm. these tools didn't exist. Now you're constantly on a research project every day. What new tool exists for me to, to protect my IP and extract value from my IP and monetize my IP? So mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the setup for that. There's now, if, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like I remember you mentioning there's a way to like, you should register your music as a publisher or a writer. Yeah. So and this, this, there's different ways to do it, but keep in mind that the way that performing rights organizations work is that they, they collect income, but they pay writers and they pay publishers. Mm -hmm. yes. You can register as a writer and forget to register as a publisher. That publishing money is still generated. You just may not be capturing it. Okay. Now, some of them are, are moving more towards a model of where if you're a DIY writer, check the box and we'll get your publishing too. Okay. But historically, it would have been where it registers a writer and registers a publisher. Because what we often forget as creators is that the money's being made. It's just you're not getting it. Yes. So the money's in the system, right? Oh, you're a writer. Let's put your portion into your bucket. But we don't have a publisher registered. So we'll just keep that in the slush fund. After a certain period of time, that slush fund gets paid out to whoever's top 10. You know what I mean? Jump into that real quick because that was very surprising. I had no idea the way a lot of these PROs kind of pool up the money and how they're actually dividing it out. So if you don't mind just kind of jumping into that real quick. So we would love to believe that it's like a one for one. My song spun one time and there's a point zero 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 you know, fraction of a penny that goes to that one spin. It's not really how it works. It's sort of a weighted algorithm where you say, okay, my song spun once, but your song spun 10,000 times. That doesn't mean I make a penny and you make 10,000 pennies. Now your, yours and mine is weighted against Justin Bieber, Drake, 
you know, baby Rexa, you know, whatever. And it's like, okay, so now you're also weighing against popularity and the volume of streams and the volume of activity. And so ultimately there's a formula that says, okay, let me give you an example. I know that I've had my music certain places where I know I'm registered with, with ASCAP. I know that it played. I know I didn't make a dime from that. And it's frustrating for creators because we're like, shouldn't there be a trace from right. that performance to my bank account? There's not. And they're never, and honestly, I don't think there ever will be. And you think about it, Spotify, like all the DSPs get sued all the time for inaccurate accounting. All the labels get sued all the time. All the publishers get sued all the time because this should be an accurate business. It never has been. And honestly, I don't think it ever will be. Not because of dishonesty, just the complexity of like, think about it, the complexity of like, is your phone and your computer like next to each other? Is that one stream? It's two devices, so right, two streams, right, but right. I'm sitting in front of both. So imagine if you could, as a, as a creator, put up a hundred devices all playing yeah. your song over and over and over and over, right? Somebody's got to figure that out. How do we keep you from getting excess money when you really... So 10,000 actual separate people stream your song versus you streaming it 10,000 times. Should right. we pay you the same as the, the you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's part of the issue. And really it comes down to trusting trusting a system that's not trustworthy, not because <laughs> of it's evil or, I mean, you know, maybe there's a piece of it that is, but just because there's no way for 100% accuracy and transparency. Yeah. So all that leads to is, well, um, if the money's made, if I'm not registered, I at least got to show up to the to the team, to the field with my equipment ready to go, right? Mm -hmm. To make a stupid sports analogy. Um, I got to be prepared for that. That's the very first step. The second step is I got to track it down. Well, guess what? Labels employ teams of people just to extract their, their rightful income from YouTube, for example. So if a label's hiring people just to make sure they get paid, what do you think you're going to do as an individual? Mm -hmm. It's going to be very difficult. Definitely. That's why the more you know and the more that you can track this stuff down and go after it, the better off you're going to be. Because otherwise, when I mentioned earlier, it goes into a slush fund. Generically speaking, you have all this money that's been generated and we don't know who to pay out, right? So we put it in a big bucket. We being a PRO, a label, a publisher, a DSP, every single entity in this, in this music space has to put money, they don't know where it goes, into somewhere, like an escrow account, a holding account. We'll hold this till we figure it out. Guess what? Every state in this country has a statute of limitations. And maybe this is a little bit peeking behind the curtain. At, at a certain point, you can't even, you don't even have the legal right to sue them for not right. paying you. That money's still there. So where'd it go? Mm -hmm. Maybe into a shareholder's pocket, maybe into a new glass building or maybe into the the artists that are doing billions of streams instead of thousands of streams. Yep. And that's why I want to empower the indie community to say that money's yours, go get it. Cuz if you mm -hmm. don't, the ones who are all already winning are just going to get your money too. Yeah, to speak on the um keeping track of all the stream stuff, you know, I did an episode on the blockchain and in music and what that could do and I think like the the answer to solving that tracking issue, I think, is within the blockchain because you you have the ability now it's convoluted and people are just 
it's a weird space we're at with the blockchain right now. And I'm hoping things um, become more simple and easier and implemented over the next 10, 20 years or so. But the answer there is you register your music. It gets registered on the blockchain with a tag ID. And whenever that tag, you know, these streaming platforms also need to be on the blockchain. So when they pull that track, it's pulled from the database of the blockchain where it can pull that unique ID and everything can get tracked by that simple ID. And the second that track gets played, there's a portion that comes out of some sort of wallet that then gets deposited directly into your wallet. Um, that's a very simple way to put it, but like that is kind of the way that it, it needs to get tracked right now. There's no system in place to be able to track that sort of a thing. And that really is the issue, but you know, we, this isn't a blockchain episode. We're not going to talk about that sort of thing, but I think there's, there's something there to be said of how you can track where your stuff is being played, how it's being played, what you're getting paid, all that. But, um, let's jump over to the record label route real quick. You know, I know we got about 15 minutes, so, um, there, there's a couple more questions I want to ask specifically with the, you know, mashups and remixes. So we'll, we'll jump into that towards the end, but when you're, when you are signing a track, a single with a record label, what does it now? Every record label is probably going to be a bit, a little bit different depending on how they have their contract set up and if they're even registering their music. But I, in a, in an ideal world, does it look like the record label is registering for the publisher and the artist is registering as the writer? Um, or is there a different, what is it? A mixed bag what does that look like when you're signing with a record label how should it look and how should artists be asking record labels some of those more detailed nuanced questions so at at the largest labels the largest publishing companies they want to be proactive about it in part because that is their money too and that's so so them being proactive in registrations is it's self-serving in a good way right they need that they want that so generally speaking, you sign with a big record label or big publisher, they're going to take responsibility for that, but not all the time. So as part of your negotiation process, if, if you're not registered with a PRO and you're signing a deal because they do love your, the music you're putting out, you need to say, hey, as part of this deal, I want to make sure that you either help me get registered or you do it for me or you enable me, whatever. But you can't leave that off the table. You have to put that on the table. But but that's at sort of the biggest and, and the most well-funded. Everybody else, you're on your own. I mean, that's a reality. So if you don't say anything, uh, there's a lot of indie labels and a lot of indie publishers that don't even know where the money's at. And the reason <laughs> why is it's because people that love music and maybe know how to do some digital marketing, that, that's literally like half of the indie labels out there in any genre. Yes, yes. I know how to manage social media well. I kind of got a business mind. I'm a record label. Uh, and yep. I'm not mad at them, right? Yep. I love that they're helping our community. But what I don't like is they don't know any more than you know. <laughs> and so it's like it's the blind leading the blind in a sense of like, well, then let's do this together. Ask the questions. Who is registering with the copyright office, with the PROs, with Sound Exchange, with Harry Fox? Who's administering all the licenses? Who's making sure that when my track goes out, that it's being collected? Is anyone figuring out YouTube content ID? Is anyone figuring out if there's a deal? If can we do a deal with Facebook, with or with Meta? You know, covering Facebook, Instagram, with TikTok, you know, whatever. 
if you're not asking the questions, again, the money's being generated. It's just not going to you. So when you sign these deals, you have to go in assuming they're not going to handle that for you. They're not going to take care of it, most likely because they don't even understand it themselves. Yeah. But they can't show that to you. They can't right. act like, and and I'm not, like I said, and I mean this sincerely, I'm not mad at them because they're trying to help. But if you don't ask the questions, that just gets swept under the carpet and neither of you are making money. So ask the questions. Who's doing this? If they, and if they don't know, send them the link to this episode, right? If you're asking those questions, they have no idea. This is probably the episode they need to listen to so they can get a grasp on things they need to research and the, you know, the ducks they need to get in order. So that was perfect. Thank you so much for that information. Let's let's jump into mashups and remixes. What let's just start with mashups. So we take two popular songs, we put them on top of each other and make it into this different original thing that's not very original uh what rights do i mean let's just first start off with the person that creates that mashup what are they allowed to put out and what rights do they have to put that stuff out without you know getting the okay from the original artists so this is where it's a complicated mess not just because it's legally complicated it's also pragmatically complicated um, and it's also socially complicated now because some things are permissible socially. Now they're just acceptable, like almost like we can't stop it. So we might as well embrace it because think about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there were a lot of cease and desist and lawsuits over you use my song on YouTube. Now it's like, I'm not going to sue you. I'm just going to monetize your content. Right. Yeah. And so the piece of it that's hard is what, what legally could put you at risk socially is just like everyone does it and so i'm not going to worry about it however i'm a lawyer so i see <laughs> when you do that and then it's the one time you do get a cease and desist but it's not just a cease and desist pay us 50 grand or we're taking this to court and guess what you've infringed their copyright so let's break this down real quick i take two songs i mash them up right i don't own either of those when i say i take two songs i'm taking most likely I'm taking two pre-recorded sound recordings. Sampling is the most risky thing you could do because in uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court, if I, if I copy your musical composition, like take a Taylor Swift song and I kind of like maybe copy some lines, uh, some of the melody, but you're not sure, but you're kind of like, you know, it's a Taylor Swift. Maybe. It's close. It's it's, all, it's almost there. It's relative. <laughs> right. But the, the burdens of proof, what's, in, you know, what's infringement, what's not, there's a lot more gray area. If I take one second, you know, give me one of your tracks. If I take one second, you could sue me for infringement. That's, that's crazy and good for the creator. It's crazy for like how that works because it's such a drastic difference. So if you're right. if you're a producer and you're taking two tracks, you're you're effectively sampling without consent. I mean, granted, it's much more than a sample. So we've already infringed, like let's check the box. We've infringed because we've used their material without their consent. Now we've also merged it with another piece, like two, two into one without consent. That's the right to create derivative works potentially. So now there's two rights I've violated up on youtube i put up on the dsps well who's getting paid for that and the question is well didn't i create something you did but am i allowed to go into your library and pull your stuff and then create something new from it right i'm gonna get sued so mashups are tricky because we all see them every day we see them without lawsuits 
in fact, some of us are like, we know like, you know, oh, um, David Guetta put this out, Dead Mouse put this out. And we're like, wait, if they're doing it, like, why can't, mm-hmm. you know, why can't I? Um, but you don't think about behind the scenes. It's it's highly probable that they licensed what they've done. You know, I don't, this uh, quick side note, but case in point, David Guetta put out some sort of like fake track with Eminem. Like I think it was an yeah, AI. Yes. Yeah. I talked about that. And I, I actually mentioned in an episode, I talked about that. I was like, there's going to be copyright something there. Like there's like, you can't just do that and put it out and be like, it's my own original. Yeah. And, and granted, you know, he's like, it's a joke. I didn't yeah. you know put it out of the DSPs or whatever. But the truth is he probably crapped his pants because like, he's like, Oh man, there's so many additional issues in that, you know, can you emulate somebody's voice without actually copying it? You know, all that kind of stuff. But my point here is that when you mash up, you should get consent because without it, you're exposed legally. But Mm -hmm. we know 90% of the time, no one's getting consent. They do it. And many times what's, what's interesting and weird and cool at the same time is you put it out and the, even the original artists are like, I love this. Yeah, it's right. Repeat. What are you supposed to do? Yeah. Think about it. The artist probably doesn't own it because their yeah. publisher and or their label owns it. So the mm-hmm. artist can love it and you still get sued because the artist doesn't control it. So when it comes to mashups, my conservative lawyer self says, go get consent to mash it up do it right. You'll pay a license fee, but then you have zero risk of liability and you could extract the maximum value from doing that. Now, if you, yeah, go ahead. What about, cause I've heard this before. I'm like, I've heard the past. Oh, well, if you just put it out for free on SoundCloud and don't enable downloads, like you're fine. You're not making money off of it. It's a hundred percent false coming from a 20 year veteran uh, attorney. <laughs> good to know <laughs> what it really translates to is you'll probably not be on the radar and or probably won't get sued but legally that that is there it's right. it's an infringement right whether or not you get sued that's a statistical probability that's not a legal issue you know what i mean mm-hmm. and are remixes essentially the same way so if you take a song and you you know maybe you cut the vocal out or you cut a you copy the melody and change it into a completely different sound and kind of make a whole remix off of it. Um, and you publish that on like SoundCloud for free. Is it you're running into the same thing? If you take a melody, turn it into a new sound or a vocal, publish it on SoundCloud, it's still a licensing issue, correct? Same, same exact issues. It just looks different and it's defined differently. But the, the really comes down to without consent, it doesn't matter if it's free or not, because quick side note, I think is worth your your people knowing if you infringe my copyright and i cannot prove actual damages because you gave it away for free if i've registered mine properly i can get what are called statutory damages up to 150,000 per infringement so you don't make a dollar off of my music i could still get 150 grand plus attorney fees wow. so six figure seven figure liability and you didn't even make any money from it but the hard part is always balancing yeah but no one does that I don't I don't know what to tell you because that's a that is a reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's there's gray area. It's nuanced Uh, in electronic music. I mean, people play out mashups. All I play out mashups live all the time at venues. I I've sent them to friends. I I've remixed stuff and do it all the everyone does in electronic music and no one really cares. So. I think it's it is important to understand the repercussions like this is a possibility 
Um, and I think you're right. It is a numbers game. It's an odds. It's a statistical thing where it's like the odds are pretty low, but understand that they are there. So, but quick interjection on that point. You mentioned blockchain right now that would require everybody to play. Yeah. Everybody on all Mm -hmm. sides of the transaction. But think about it. Let's say five years from now, we're all on blockchain. That, that risk just went to a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Because you are on the radar because every transaction mm-hmm. is now on the radar. Yeah. So that logic has to find its way of like to the reality of how we're living right now. Yeah, it's weird. It would, And I would imagine you'd have to put some sort of way that you can quickly purchase a license to do a remix and that people are getting paid out. Like there's I'm, I'm you know, I'm sure there's a way to go about it, but it, it, it going to blockchain stuff. You're right. Everyone has to be on board and it's going to be a weird, sticky mess for a while. Um, but. We're, we're at the end of our time, Brock. I appreciate you coming on so much. If there's anything you'd like to plug, um, obviously you have a YouTube channel. If someone wants to hire you for some attorney work, because I'm sure there are people listening that would love to pick your brain some more, um, go ahead and plug away whatever you've got. Um, any socials, anything like that? I, you know, I'm not a big uh, social, like, like I'm not a big salesman um, because what you said at the beginning, I truly do want to help the community. But, you know, I, I like to pay the bills, too. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if I think my YouTube channel, the Indie Music Success, is there to just provide solid education. Um, my socials, Brock Shinen. I mean, I think that's the best way. And uh, for me, this is all about, like, empowering this community. And um, I, I love what the independent community creates. I love what the EDM community creates. So to me, it's like, if I can contribute to that, great. If you need to hire me, um, I'd love to help you if I can, but that's not why I'm here. And that's mm-hmm. also why that's that's not as big of a deal to me. But yeah, watch the content, see if it helps. Awesome. Brock, thank you so much. I'll have all the links to everything we talked about, including um, your socials and whatnot on the show notes at enviousaudio.com slash episode 104. Uh, thank you so much again, Brock. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really good time. Of course. Take care. <laughs>